0: The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Time, Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland and welcome all to Night Fright. Don't go anywhere tonight, folks. We've got a great show on JFK coming up. As I look outside the studio window tonight, there's a snowstorm raging right here in Kingston. So it's a good night to hunker down, get the coffee going, get the tea going, or get a beverage of your choice going. Hot chocolate's a good choice tonight also, folks. Stick your feet up on that comfy couch we're going to get into all the nuts and bolts of the JFK assassination. With me tonight, joining me all the way from Los Angeles is Pat Spears. Pat Spear is a renowned researcher in the JFK assassination. Just let me read a little bit about his background. Pat went to California State University and then into the entertainment industry. He is a leading researcher and speaker for numerous JFK assassination conferences, including the one coming up in Dallas this year in just a few days. Pat has uh, done extensive work on the autopsy uh, of JFK's head, and he's done extensive work on something called the brown bag, which we're going to get into as well. So... All the way from Los Angeles, thank you, Pat, for joining us.
1: Thank you, Brett, for having
0: me. This is terrific. Okay, let's talk about the head wound then. Um, Many people think it came from the back and took off this part of Kennedy's head, which is the upper uh, right quadrant of his head. And yet, everybody I've spoke to, first-person witnesses, like Dr. McClelland, who worked on JFK and... Folks, uh, for those of you that are unaware, that show is in the archives as well. He saw the back of Kennedy's head blasted out when he was lying there on the gurney when he was first brought to Parkland Hospital. Do you follow into that camp as well?
2: Oh,
1: <laughs> actually, I've got myself in a lot of trouble over the years because I'm, I'm, uh, I differ, I, uh, differ rather. From a lot of my uh, fellow conspiracy theorists, on a lot of the head wounds, um, I do believe the head wounds are indicative of more than one shooter, and I believe that of uh, further study of the head wounds will eventually prove this. But I don't think that the sh- I don't think that the Parkland witnesses are as reliable as people want to believe they are. Okay, and one sure of the reasons yeah. I was on the fence. I I totally understand a lot of a lot of when you research the Kennedy assassination you have to say like who knew what when so a lot of researchers um... see that all these parklet witnesses were saying there was a wound towards the back of the head a lot of them went and talked to them and they said yeah the wound was on the back of the head and then they see the autopsy photos and it's not where they said it was so i totally understand how people would go down the lifting road and think the wound was moved or that the autopsy photos are fake and i was you know feeling that and i was probably heading in that direction but then I, I only started researching this in uh, 2003. So uh, I went and like, well, what about the actual people in, in the plaza, what did they say? And I found that virtually every person who I witnessed to the shooting, they didn't say the back of the head blew off, they said the top of the head blew off. Um oh, Newman, that's
0: news to me. Okay.
1: Yeah, most people don't realize that. I, uh, so I went through and I created actually a couple chapters on my website to try to explain to people that, hey, I'm not the CIA, I'm not your enemy, I'm someone who's really looked at this, and I have a feeling, you know, my instinct tells me that the Parkland witnesses are wrong. And so I uh, followed up and I actually spoke at the uh, uh, Cyril Wex conference last year at, du- at Duquesne University about the head wounds and about why I think they show a conspiracy. And basically, what it comes down to is um, the large head wound from the top of the head that we see explode in frame 313 is everything about it is indicative. Of what is called a tangential wound, a wound of both entrance and exit, everything about it—the the, uh, the nature of the scalp wound, the nature of the uh, fractures, the uh, the nature of the brain wound, the uh, dura, the, the way the dura was torn—because I went back and I um I said you know I I'm not a doctor, so how do I find out about these things besides reading conspiracy literature or Oswald did it literature? Because they tell you opposite things, and they you know. Some of them spent a lot of time talking about it. This guy's an idiot, that guy's an idiot. And it's like, it's tough to get down to the bottom of it. So I actually, you know, I, I was fortunate by living in Southern California. We have a top facility here. So I went to the UCLA Biomed Library, which by being a public institution, I could just go in there and roam the stacks. And I spent roughly two years going there about once, every, once a month, grabbing 50 articles, photocopy them. Photocopying them, you know, people probably thought I worked there. I was spent so much time photocopying stuff there, and it was kind of funny because sometimes when I was there, I was like, you know what? I bet David Lifton stood in this exact same spot 30 years ago, you know. And sometimes I come through some article and like a page was tore out, and I'm like, Lifton. <laughs> it, it probably wasn't him, but still, it was funny because I would just felt like this presence of because David Lifton was at UCLA when he got involved in his theories too. I and, should tell
0: uh, folks David Lifton shows in the archives as well, folks. Um, He's a renowned researcher as well. He wrote a a terrific book called Best Evidence that actually inspired a lot of people to go deeper and delve deeper into the Kennedy assassination. So that's www.nightfrightshow.com, as well as we're going to put all the links there for Pat Spears, who our guest tonight. We're talking about the Kennedy assassination. And uh, we're looking at different aspects of the head wound, the fatal shot, when Pat mentioned Zed. 313 or z313 i'll translate um little joke there
2: <clears throat>
0: it, it essentially means zapruder 313 and zapruder film is that most famous film that you've seen in the movie jfk back into the left back into the left as kevin costner says and what they did was um they numbered each individual frame starting with z or Z, and uh Z313 is the actual kill shot frame, and you can see the president's head explode. And we'll go back to Pat now. So, Pat, when you went to the UCLA library, what kind of information was available to you there that led you down this
1: path? Well, um, a number of things. Well, One of the, one of the things I, I think is still something that everybody who studies this case should know is that, you know, they, they the medical evidence was reinvestigated in 1968 by the Clark panel and that was led by Dr. Russell Fisher. And then one of the leading members of the Rockefeller Commission panel that looked at it again in 1975 was uh, Dr. Werner Spitz. And then Dr. Werner Spitz was also in the HSCA forensic pathology panel which reinvestigated in 1977 and 78. So Fisher and Spitz are two very influential people who've looked at this evidence. And they wrote a book called Medical Legal Investigation of Death, which is some people call it the Bible of forensic pathology. And in their book, it specifies that where you have a large you have a defect in the scalp, a hole in the scalp, that that is the bullet entrance site, because when the bullet explodes out of the head, it tears the scalp. It doesn't take chunks of the scalp with it; it just tears the scalp out. So. And they say, they say that that's a way to tell the entrance from an exit. So I was like, whoa, because the big defect in the skull and the scalp, according to the autopsy, is right here, hmm. where p- some people think that's the exit. or that's. For years, we've been told that's the exit. But I've come to the conclusion that that's – if there's an entrance on the back of the head, which I believe there is, it's a totally separate wound from the, this wound. This The wound on the top of the head is an entrance and an exit. It's called a tangential wound. And um, anyhow, so I was like, that's really important. So how did the HSCA get around that? So in the HSCA's records, they say, although the autopsy report says that there's m- missing scalp, we think they were probably mistaken about that. <laughs> that's how they explain it. They have no explanation for it. So they just say, oh, they must be mistaken about that. But what they overlook in the report is that Dr. Uh, William Kemp Clark was the uh, emergency room doctor, or the doctor in Bethesda, I mean, a uh, Parkland in Dallas, who first looked at Kennedy's head wound, and in his report, written even before the autopsy report, he noted how it was a large defect of skull and scalp. So that missing scalp there is, you know, a, it's not a smoking gun, but I mean, it, it is a very strong evidence that the, the head wound here was not related to the head wound in the back, therefore, there's two head wounds, therefore, there's two shooters. So that, it, that the missing scalp the Torendura, these things all indicate that this is the impact location of a bullet here. And then, um, I don't know if you, she's been on your show, but Sherry Feaster is a blood spatter analyst, and I read some of her papers, and she said the same thing. She said the blood spatter um, indicates that that is where the bullet impacted. So uh, these things all came together. Like everything is lining up to say that that's where the bullet impacted. And then I read that William K- Kemp Clark, the uh the surgeon in uh, the neurosurgeon in Dallas who first looked at Kennedy's wound, when he told the war, when he interviewed, was interviewed by the Warren Commission, um, they basically said, "Well, the bullet entered the back of the head and exploded." And he's kind of like, "Okay, I'll go along with that." You know, he wasn't really arguing with them. They're like, kind of like, "Well, what did you think?" And he says, "When I looked at it, I thought it was a tangential wound of both entrance and exit." And he was a military surgeon who had experience going back to World War II, I believe. Um, so he knew what a tangential wound looked like, and he said to him, "That looked like a tangential wound." And then years later, I realized that the Harper fragment, which was a piece of bone that was found in the plaza the next day and uh, eventually made its way to Washington. But it was photographed in Dallas by uh, some of the doctors, uh, some of the people at the hospital. And they kept – held on to those pictures, and eventually they became public, and people saw what this fragment looked like. Um, That on the Harper fragment, there's a point where the beveling changes from interior beveling to exterior beveling. Which, to me, that's proof that the, it's a tangential wound. It's a bullet that started in her the head and then exploded out. So I think eventually um, people with lots, you know, good curriculum vitae, as they say, uh, CVs, uh, doctors, and forensic pathologists are all going to take a closer look at this. I've talked to Dr. Sirwet about it. He's very interested in what I have to say. And eventually, it's, I think it's, it's going to come out, and they're going to say, yes, that, that wound was a tangential wound, and there was more than one shoot. I think the evidence is already
0: out there. com, folks. Pat Spears, our guest tonight. You can... Okay, let's go to the paper bag now. Um, I want to come back to the headshot after, but I think it's important that we uh, tell the folks what the paper bag is, how it started, and uh, what the Warren Commission said was inside the paper bag. Could you do that for, for us, please, Pat?
2: Sure.
1: Um, Oswald on the morning of the assassination bill fraser said that oswald had a paper bag with him, and he asked oswald what they were and oswald said they were curtain rods so that's the curtain rod story as they say and some people think that fraser made it up but fraser he doesn't believe oswald really did it so so i don't I, 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 you know if he's somebody who just wanted everybody to think oswald did it okay maybe he'd make up the story or something but no he doesn't want people to think oswald did it because he swears the bag he saw in oswald's possession was twenty four to twenty six inches long, and the rifle that was found on the sixth floor, the rifle believed to be, to belong to Oswald, was forty inches long and the the bag found in the bag that was supposedly found in in the sixth floor is i think 36, 38 inches long. Yeah, so they think that oswald they think that Oswald evidently they believe Oswald made a bag found it didn't fit the rifle, took the rifle apart, put it in the bag. And then to put the rifle back together, but you know i'm not I am not a shooter, but number of shooters have told me that like you know if you put the put a rifle back together with a dime, as supposedly Oswald did, it's going to take a couple of shots to like get it to settle in you're not going to be real confident in that rifle after that, but uh there's so many problems with the bag, so um, start so, it off okay Let's tell this tell one yeah okay so the, 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 one of the problems that people pointed out a long time ago is that. The bag was not there was not photographed it was supposedly found right by the sniper's nest the window where the shot supposedly came from. It was supposedly found right there yet the evidence sh- photos of that area show that there's that they didn't take any pictures of the bag there's, there was no pictures of the bag in that location so later on they took a picture of that corner and in the Warren reports you know uh, exhibits, is a picture of that corner with like a, a dotted line showing where the bag supposedly was. <laughs> that that's, that passes for evidence in the Warren Commission, um, but it gets really curious when you start looking at who supposedly found the bag. The Dallas police records say that uh, two de- two of their detectives, L.D. Montgomery and um, I don't know, my brain's. Slipping right here. That's okay. Another That's okay. guy w- w- was with Johnson, I want to say his name is, Detective Johnson. Marvin Johnson, I think his name. Anyhow, they, they saw the, that they discovered the bag, and then they got Robert Studebaker, who was one of the uh, crime scene people from the Dallas police, over, and the three of them kind of found it together. And then somehow um, Lieutenant J.C. Day was the head of the crime scene group. But as soon as they found the rifle, he took it over to the, uh, to put it in safekeeping. So he was gone for a while. So the, most people think that they found the bag while he was out. But that doesn't make a lot of sense because that would have been, you know, like, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour after the sniper's nest was found. Mm-hmm. And there's movie footage by Tom Allier, a, a, a news uh, cameraman, of a lot of the detectives standing over in that corner where the bag was supposedly found. So then you go through, you can recognize some of these detectives, particularly uh, Captain Will Fritz, the head of the detective uh, bureau. And he, he had no recollection of the bag. And it's like, okay, how, how good a cop are you if you go to a corner where you think some uh, shots were fired, and there's this three, uh, you know over three foot long paper bag that's been taped together, and it's just sitting there like, you know, six inches away from where you think these shots were fired and no one remembers it. The whole thing smells. And so um, I believe that I've, I've come to conclude that the bag was put together by the police or or, or it could be more complicated than that. Because one of the thing, so I started following hunches, okay. So one of my hunches was that the, there's a – newspaper photos, newspaper men took some photos of Montgomery – and Johnson leaving the uh, school book depository with the bag. And that bag in that photo looks way bigger than the bags in the, in the uh, FBI and the, uh, in the photos of the National Archives. We know that the coloring of the bag changed because, I mean, the official story is that the coloring changed because they put, I think it's silver nitrate to try to capture fingerprints on paper. So that changed the color of the bag. So you can explain the, the difference in color, but the shape of the bag Seems like the one is they. they, they as I say, is a shaped like a guitar case. The one that's being brought out of the building seems like a guitar case, but the one that's in the archives looks like the, like an exact rectangle. Um, and then you start realizing there's a lot of suspicious things. Like for, nowhere in the Warren report, in the Warren Commission's records, I don't believe there is are the measurements of the bag
0: hmm.
1: ever given, which that I always find that. Yeah. Why are, why aren't the measurements ever given? Um, the, there's up close photos of. Oswald's prints on a piece of paper, and then there's faraway shots of the whole bag with like little white pieces of tape saying where the um, the prints were supposedly found. But you can't match it up at all. You can't. You can't. You know the the creases in the paper, in the folds and everything. You can't match it up at all and say, oh, that's there. Um, so I'm not con- convinced that the photographs of the uh, prints on the bag. Are actually on the bag that is currently in the archives. Mm. So the whole thing is very curious to me. And then another aspect that's curious is that um, to see if the bag was made in the school book depository, they took samples. And then, but in the Warren Commission's records is a photograph of the sample, and it's only like a couple of inches. Mm. So I'm like, what happened to the rest of the sample? And it's like, oh, well, maybe the rest of the sample became the bag, you know. Um, the, the did they ever head, the find back... the curtains? What
0: was there ever? Did anybody ever find curtains anywhere? Oh, the admit... curtain rods. Yeah, the
1: curtain, rod, the curtain rods. Um, no, they didn't find any in the in the schoolbook depository. But they yeah. did, curiously enough, the Payne house, yeah. Ruth Payne, which is where uh, Oswald's wife was staying, where he stayed the night before the assassination, where he would, went and visited them. Um, they actually did have a, a, a number of curtain rods in their garage. So it kind of makes sense that if Oswald was saying like, yeah, I was going to bring some curtain rods or something like that, there actually is some basis in that they. I, I think they actually had like a number of sets of curtain rods in their garage. So I'm not, I, I, you know, it's possible to me Oswald lied about the curtain rods but that he still wasn't carrying a gun mm-hmm. because who knows what kind of stuff he's in. I mean, when you, if you look at Oswald's background, it's, there's a lot of mysterious stuff. And it, it's possible to me he was um, – Involved in some sort of other, you know, he he thought he was going to be involved in some other incident to discredit so and so because, you know, I I think you know the background of him, but for viewers who do not, mm-hmm. only a few months before the assassination, Lee Harvey Oswald, who supposedly been a, a defector to Russia, um, came back, and then he was uh on the streets of New Orleans handing out leaflets, and these guys come up and start a fight with him, and the cameramen appear out of nowhere and they film the whole thing. Yeah. And then they kind of put a camera in his face and say, hey, you want to be interviewed? On, you guys want to continue this fight on TV or whatever? So then they have this debate on TV. So this guy, and it turns out that the organization that Oswald was like supposedly, you know, handing out these flyers on behalf, he was it. There was nobody else. The
0: Fair Play for Cuba. Game,
1: fair Play for Cuba committee that yeah. was well known in other cities. So... Through the course of this interview on TV, it's brought out that he has this background where he defected to Russia and that he's a communist and all this stuff. Where they totally discredit the Fair Play for Com- Cuba Committee in New Orleans, just by coincidence. Well, as we later found out, because people broke into a FBI office and discovered documents indicating the FBI had a series of programs called COINTELPRO programs and a, counterintelligence programs where they were their job was to infiltrate organizations that were deemed harmful to the United States, I guess, I don't know the term for it, um, to infiltrate these organizations and discredit them. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, at the time that Oswald was was representing the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, there was a COINTELPRO against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. So th- there's a lot of reason to suspect that Oswald was yeah. involved in certain plans and hijinks city for all I, – I, you know, I've thrown out the IDB form people to say, oh, you're just making it up. And it's true. I am just making it up. But it, it, it's reasonable to me as a lot of other things. Oswald might have smuggled a banner into the building that he was supposed to hang from the 6-4 window. And that banner was going to be like an insult to Kennedy that would be used to discredit some organization. Oh, I see. Okay. There could be something like that. There could be 20 or 30 other similar plots that he might have been involved in. So I think Oswald could very well have been involved in a plot, but not to kill the president. That's my take on it. Do
0: you feel he pulled the trigger that day at all? I
1: not um you know you, you never really know what's inside a person's heart. Hmm. I, I I will agree with that. Um I but some people think like Oswald was a squirrely guy and he was capable of doing anything. Like every now and then you you realize that people are regurgitating nonsense when they start to use words like scintilla. It's like there's not a scintilla of evidence. Well, I think Hoover said it first, but then you hear Gerald Posner say it. It's said, say it. They just love that scintilla of it. They just say it over and over again. And whenever you hear someone say there's not a scintilla of evidence, you know that there is a scintilla of evidence, by the way. Um, the other one is that you hear some people say, in Oswald's Swiss cheese brain, they, they, they throw that one out there, that this guy Oswald was a loony. He was just completely crazy, totally unreliable. And... I don't think that's an accurate pr- representation of the man when you look at, you know, some of the people that were his friends. George de DeMorenchild was a very sophisticated, intelligent man, and he really liked Oswald and thought Oswald was a pretty sharp guy. And then, you know, the fact that Oswald, beyond being 24 years old and debating uh, our involvement with Cuba on TV in New Orleans, he also had spoken uh, before groups about his experiences in, in Russia and comparing them to the United States. And they all thought he was a college-educated, well very articulate, intelligent man. So, to, to present him as being this Swiss cheese guy that you don't know what's going on with him, I think is just inaccurate. Okay, I think Bill's got a question for you, Pat.
2: I, just a little input. Um, I'm a dear friend uh, uh, of David Lifton. Uh, I've been his friend for a number of years. Uh, have done has done some legal work for him, um, and so I, I am a big believer that a, balti, a, a body alteration. Uh, you know, he, he showed to me and I approved that the, uh, that they, the body arrived at, uh, Bethesda morgue in a different casket than what it went on, on air force one. Uh, and so the, the, the body was switched. Uh, and so I, I'm just letting you know what my belief system is that I, I, I fully believe that the, the wounds were altered, but what I wanted to get back to was your, uh, uh, your, uh, information with regards to the bag that they say that the 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 gun that Lee Harvey Oswald snuck into the the depository you know they interviewed uh to, at great length the person that was in charge of the wrapping department the wrapped all the materials that, that all the books and everything Troy and West they,
1: yeah. they,
2: and they could not get him uh, no matter how hard they tried they could not get him to change his story that there was no way that the materials that they that this bag Supposedly was made of did not come from his desk, and apparently he was very uh, a very meticulous individual. Uh, was at that station at all times, and, and and as as hard as they tried, he wasn't going to budge, in, uh to say that Lee Harvey Oswald had anything to do with any wrapping package material, and that that, that did not come from his station, and 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 that is a great thing. A lot of people don't know about uh that uh you know shows that this thing was just fabricated when they took all the pictures of the of the sniper's nest there's no bag there they had penciled it in, drew it in whatever they did uh and so i th- that was i I was glad to hear you talk about that because because it's a it's a small minute thing, but it's a very big thing with regards to this assassination and 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 the lengths that people went to cover up stuff and to just outright lie,
1: right? The, yeah, the, the paper bag to me is the D- Dallas police might have been trying to frame a man they believe was guilty, but the fact is is that they were still trying to frame him. You know, they were trying to. I believe that they and maybe the FBI were working together to try to fabricate some of this evidence against against Oswald under the belief he was guilty. You know, my understanding is that it was very common back in that period and maybe who knows today for a certain amount of evidence to be um, massaged to look mm-hmm. make someone look more guilty so that they could for- get him to get a confession out of him. See, so... Uh- <laughs> well, yeah, you know,
2: I, 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 you know, I've done, I, I did my number of criminal law cases as a defense attorney. So I, you know, I, the, the, you're not giving me any information I don't know about, it, and <laughs> I've had saying, to I, deal I,
1: with totally out of my behind.
2: The, um, the, the second thing that you had talked about were the curtain rods, and you know, whatever the package was that Oswald had that he carried uh, with him that morning, that sat in the back seat of. Uh, Miss, uh, last name was Mr. Buell. Was I, did I get the name right? Buell Fraser.
3: Yeah. yeah, Buell yeah. Frazier,
2: Okay. Uh, he 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 was a specific when the FBI came and interviewed him, and he took him to his car, and he said, "This is the size of the package. It sat right here on the back seat." And I, I don't know whether you've taken apart the 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 Manuel rifle. Have you ever seen that? It was a it was a big rifle. And you know, I had the opportunity to uh, uh, meet with um, attorney, uh, attorney Ball in Long Beach in his office oh, and, Joe Ball. Yeah, Joe Ball. and I had the opportunity to meet with him and uh, he, he, I asked him what was the one thing that you had a problem with uh, with regards to the Kennedy assassination and he said I couldn't figure out how he could sneak that entire rifle into the building and then I found out that you could take it apart and make it uh, and have it and put it into a big brown paper bag. And I said, well, I said, okay. I said, but but you know what, Mr. Ball? I said, no one ever talks about the telescopic sight on that. And you're moving something around this and that, and it and it and it's loose. And there were reports that came out that that the, the sight was loose. I said, did you ever think about, well? was there something wrong with the telescopic sight and it would have been loose and this and that and he looked at me like a deer caught in headlights and he didn't know what to say and he and he just said "No." so <laughs> i so and that was you know that that was that so anyway I, but i i'm happy that you brought up this this brown bag because a lot of people don't know about it they don't think about it but i truly uh... it's it, it shows to me that it, it certainly this was fabricated He didn't carry a gun into the into the book depository and uh, it's just something that, you know, of, 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 unfortunately, it, it's not not going to be talked about in history books, and the media is not going to talk about it, but it, it, it's fact.
1: Yeah. I actually have a lot to, of some of the stuff I've looked at recently that I can add into that. Um, one is that, uh, oh, now I'm, now I'm spacing out a little bit. The uh, Joe Ball, I'll just go back and track. You mentioned Joe Ball. Joe Ball tried to get Frazier. Um, to admit that the the bag was bigger than it was. He, he, oh, uh,
2: absolutely, he did.
1: Oh, his, yeah. His testimony and Fraser stu- stood his ground. Okay. He stood his ground. Fr- Fraser stood his ground, but it's a lot worse than people think. Because a lot of the books will say, "Oh, well, you know, Fraser admitted that the the bag could have been 26 inches long, and the uh, but the bag was really uh, 38 inches long. So that's that's pretty close. That's what that, the way the Warren report and a lot of people will try to argue it. But no, Fraser also specified that the bag was about six inches wide, and then uh, the actual bag in the archives was well over, like uh, you know, like roughly nine nine inches wide. So oh, yeah. when you multiply it all out, the bag that supposedly held the rifle, okay, was twice as large as the bag that Fraser remembered seeing. And they only asked about him on the night of the assassination, and he passed a lie detector on it. Okay, so he wasn't lying, maybe he was wrong, but he was definitely telling the truth as he knew it. And they asked about him asked him about it on the night of the assassination. Okay? Um, and, they, and he never changed from it. And I saw him just recently in Bethesda and he was still stands by that. But I also pointed out something to Frazier that I guess no one else had ever pointed out to him. That when they FBI and when they analyzed the paper that made that bag, they realized it was made in the school book depository on the roll of the paper that was currently being used. And also, I think it was the roll of tape that was currently being used. So if you figure that out, it had to have been made the day before the assassination. Because Oswald hadn't been out to uh, Irving, where he supposedly had the bag, and supposedly put the rifle in the bag for over a week, or roughly a week. So um, for him to, to for him to put that rifle in that bag, he would have had to have brought that bag out the night before the assassination when he was in the car with Buell Frazier. Frazier drove him out on the... Uh, the Thursday night and drove him back on the Friday morning, so on the Thursday night, he would have had to have brought the bag with him and as you said, Troy West, who was in charge of the paper materials, he said he never saw Oswald ever even like over there messing around and trying to learn how to use the, the tape machine or whatever. Um, but anyhow, so, it had, so Oswald would have had to have somehow made this bag, which would have taken him some time, and no one noticed or just or smuggled you know made it there at the school book depository, and folded it up in his clothing somehow. Because Fraser said no, that he didn't see Oswald with a bag. Well, I pointed this out to Fraser, and I said, "Is there any way he could have folded up a, you know, 40-inch-long bag, 40 by 9 inches, doubled over, you know, folded it up? This is crinkly paper, uh, ra- you know, wrapping paper. I think we've all seen that kind of paper used in uh, um, shipping facilities, and folded it up and somehow stuck it in his shirt because it wasn't like Oswald it was freezing; he was wearing, you know, giant." big fat jacket or something like that. He just had a, a shirt or maybe a windbreaker. And Frazier said, he just looked at me like I was crazy for telling him this and he's just like, that didn't happen. Yeah. Straight out. Well, like like if I said, you know, your mom, you know, your mom is an alien, you just go, that didn't it? Didn't it? Yeah. No, she's <laughs> not. That, that's how Frazier's just- reaction was. That didn't happen. No equivocation. There's no way in Fraser's mind that Oswald smuggled out this big bag in his shirt that night. Well, so, you know, the, you
2: know, the commission. You know, they, they make a big point that it was a well-oiled rifle, and of course, they didn't find any oil markings. They didn't find any residue, anything inside that bag. But I, but I came across an actual picture, uh, and, and you've probably seen it. But there's a picture that's taken outside the, the schoolbook depository of of one of the uh, uh, detectives uh, holding the big bag in front of him, uh, and it's huge. I mean, it's just huge. So, uh, you know, it's just it's just a farce. It's a lie. It's just one of those things just go, OK, you know, <laughs> but That's it did a, not happen.
1: I have several chapters in my, uh, on my in my book, if you will, my online book on the bag, because uh, i pointed out that I didn't think that bag matched the bag in the archives and a f- professional photographer says oh you don't know anything about photogrammetry which is like the, you know observing photographs from angles and figuring out how things actually appear in the, in the photographs and he made you know he made some valid points at first but eventually it came down to he had no answer because i was pointing out how the folds in the bag um are are the, are the same distance as the bag gets narrower because he kept saying the reason why the bag looked like it had a narrowing to it the one, the one the photo of the bag outside the building—it looks like it's—it's uh, it, it's not even. It's not a rectangle. It gets narrower. Yeah. yeah. And he kept saying it's because the bag was leaning towards the camera. The very top part of the bag was leaning towards the camera, and that's why the, it was closer to the camera. So, it would, but the folds in it, as you go down, are roughly the same distance. So it—it's it, not the same shape. You know whether they did some sort of origami. I say evidential origami. Where they took the bag, that the actual bag that was brought out of the building, and then they refolded it in some way, who knows? But I really doubt that that happened, and um, uh, so that that is a problem. Yeah, the the, the whole bag problem, um, and I recently took it to another level. I was reading, rereading for whatever reason, a report um, by Doctor uh, Detectives Rose. Adam chick and Stovall, and it's in the D- Dallas Police records and it's in the Warren Commission records as well. And in the report, as I remember anyhow, they said that they were told to go out and talk to Marine Oswald out at the house in Irving. Um, and they got out there and they waited around for the the Sheriff's Department for forty minutes before they went into the went and knocked at the door. I'm like that's kind of weird. They think this guy's an assassin. They go out to his house and they wait around for 40 minutes because they need to get somebody from the county out there because they're off, the, you know, they, they, they crossed the city line and now they're in county territory and they're going to wait around for 40 minutes. That didn't sound like, you know, the policeman that I know. <laughs> so, um... Yeah, Gus Rose was quite a guy, actually. Oh, yeah.
3: One, he, of the few, one of the few who really, like we said, stuck by his gun. He would not be persuaded to change uh, important... Um, aspects of his uh, observations that he made during that experience and within the next uh, 48 hours, especially with regard to the minutes camera and some other things. He seemed to have been a, a person of genuine integrity for the rest of his life. Well, Wouldn't pay I, a, if I remember pay right all. he's
1: also the detective that's featured in the uh, um, Randall Adams book, What's it called? Texas Justice. I can't remember the name of the book. The that the movie The Thin uh, Blue Line was based about, where the he was yeah. the main detective who was trying to harass Randall Adams into confessing and um, trying to intimidate him and scare him, and so uh, I believe it's the same detective. Anyhow, so what was so I was curious about this. So I did I did said three thirty. That's really a long. That's three hours after the assassination before they ever knock at Marina Oswald's door. Really, yeah. Um So that seemed fishy to me. So then. I just oh you know what oh I I know what caught my eye at first was I was reading Buddy Westbrook no Buddy Walters rather the sheriff, the, the Dallas County Sheriff's Department uh, deputy sheriff who went out there the guy they were supposedly waiting for and he said he was at the uh, school he was at the uh, Texas Theater saw Oswald get arrested went into the uh, station and uh, they told him go back out and he went straight back out so I was like that's like forty minutes. Oswald got arrested at like 1.50. That's like 2.30, not 3.30. I'm like, so I wonder if they're playing some sort of game here. And then I'm like, well, what other sources are on this? So I looked in uh, Marina Lee, a book written by Priscilla McMillan, but based upon extensive interviews with Marina Oswald. And she says that they they went to the door about an hour after Kennedy's death was announced. Okay, that's also about 2.30. And then I remembered something else. I was like, huh, both Marina Lee and, and Ruth Payne, made it clear that when the police came to the door, they didn't know that Lee had been arrested. So when was Lee's, and they were also had the TV on and they'd been watching TV. So when was Lee Oswald's arrest announced? So I actually found a thread on the education forum that I write on sometimes online, which uh, Gary Mack had actually submitted the information to one of the members, and he would put posted it, that his research showed that Oswald's arrest was announced on the Dallas TV stations at 243. So all this points to the policeman actually being there at 2.30, you know, before 2.43, now 2.30 or so. And so I'm like, well, why would they be fibbing about what time they they went to the door? And I'm like, oh, wait a second. This all feeds back into, because after the policeman came to the door, um, Buell Frazier's sister, Lenny Mae Randall, walked up the street and she started talking to the policeman, And she told them that Oswald had a bag that morning. Okay. So in the policeman scenario they don't know about the bag till after three thirty well the photographs of the bag being brought out of the building are at three so they're in the clear right they didn't make that bag and they didn't even know there was a bag but if you go back and say the policeman and realize that the policemen were actually there at 2:40, and the bag was brought out at three well they could have said this guy had a bag they might have even made that bag to show lenny May randall to see if it looked like the bag like, here's, here's a bag made from material from the building. Could this be the kind of bag that Oswald had that morning? Who knows what that bag was at that time? Because that bag, interestingly enough, you know, um, the Dallas police took a number of evidence photos on the night of the assassination. Not only was the bag not, ident- not photographed in the sniper's nest, it was not photographed at the Dallas Police Department. Mm, the, absolutely. the earliest the photograph they have, the Dallas police took of that bag, is on the 26th when they were getting ready to ship it out to the FBI for a second time. Anyhow, so yeah, the bag story smells to hell, and if I was, you know, a defense attorney and Oswald was my client, I would totally focus on that bag cuz that would just like put all the evidence, you know, in a context where a jury wouldn't be able to trust it, I think.
2: No, you you nailed that right on. Yeah, right, that's spot on. All right, you nailed that. So yeah. <laughs> that's why I think the bag thing is so because I look at it, you know, as if I was defending someone and that and it's just it's just it, it's craziness, you know. You, you 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 could just destroy that, you know, in, in a court of law. And I always look at this, you know, the Kennedy assassination through the eyes of you know a, a, of an attorney, as I am. But you you have to to make sense as to what evidence is, what evidence could come in, and what evidence is just floating out there and would never be able to come in. So,
3: Brent, do you mind if I go back just to talk to Pat for a moment about uh, Buell's Fraser? Because that's the yes. first time I'd ever met him, first time I'd ever spoken with him. Um, I've got a couple of questions for Pat. The first is, what do you make of uh, Buell's demeanor, his disposition, his casual but very, very cautious um, process by which he chooses his words? Uh, What was your sort of just gut impression of listening to him speak?
1: Oh, I think Buell's Buell's very credible. He uh, was someone who... Was scared, you know, on, on the when the he was arrested on the day of the assassination as being a possible conspirator with Oswald. And he was just a young kid, yeah. and he was as he always says, he was country. I think he uses the word country, which is a way he wasn't sophisticated, he wasn't used to dealing with big yeah. city policemen and stuff. And he was scared. to oh, death. Yeah. And then sure. uh, conspiracy researchers kept trying to get him to say that he made up the story about the. the uh, curtain rods or whatever. So he was not sure who his friends were. And over the course of time, he was very tentative about dealing with conspiracy researchers or uh, yeah. even you know, other people as well. And somewhere, strangely enough, Hay- uh, Hugh Ainsworth, the-, the Dallas reporter who uh, some people consider oh, yeah. <laughs> but right? it, you antichrist. Know, but Hugh Ainsworth, <laughs> I think, became friends with him and c- encouraged him to get out of his shell a little bit. So it ended yeah. up being on the 50th anniversary, there was Buell All a lot of these TV shows, but as I pointed out to Buell in, in, his, uh, in Bethesda, they would use him, he'd say, oh yeah, you know, Oswald brought home, he had a package in his hand when he went to work in the, that morning, and then they That's would say, what they like, use. yeah, that package was the rifle, they would like cut right. him in the interview, because he exactly. would continue to say, yeah. oh, that package is too small to hold a rifle. Or he, would, you know, right, he yeah. would edit the interview to make it look like he was saying he thought the rifle was in his car. And he insists from the day one that whatever that package was that Oswald had, it did not have a rifle in it. And, well, uh, something
3: ha- interesting Something interesting happened in the hall uh, on the 11th floor one night. Uh, Bill Sintich and I stumbled upon Buell Fraser, and we ended up talking to him for about 45 minutes. And Bill was uh, very interested in the fact that Buell owned a an Infield 303 rifle, which Buell, if I remember this correctly, and it's possible I don't, but I believe Buell did not know something that uh, Bill mentioned and talked about. You know, he's 19 years old. He's not well educated at the time. He's not uh, very worldly. But he owns this 303 infield rifle, which I believe he bought through the mail. I'm not certain of that, but I believe that's what Bill said. And that on the afternoon of the assassination, the local news affiliate, one of the local network affiliates, announced something, which undoubtedly they'd been fed from the Dallas Police, from Will Fritz's office, and that is that uh, what the rifle may have been an infield 303, British-made infield 303. So talk about trying to pressure this kid into, you know, making a concession or an admission or or anything. It sounds like there was a full court press on the part at least of Will Prince's office to kind of pressure um, Will into admitting that he was a co-conspirator.
1: Well, another interesting element of that is that there are no records in the Dallas police files because they had, you know, they put them online a few years ago. I think everything that they had in their files is now on the Dallas Archives website. Um, as I recall, there was nothing in there indicating that Bill Fraser was giving a polygraph test. About, yeah, that's right. That's not in there anywhere. But it is in an FBI report from like two days later, where they went back and talked to the some of the Dallas police and said Bill Fraser was given a polygraph test and he passed, blah blah blah. So. It's interesting that the Dallas police kept no records of the questions he was asked or, you know, what his responses were. There's no cut record of the tapes. Um, yeah. So I think that they were kind of embarrassed by the way they harassed him and just tried to hide, cover it up, you know, made it disappear. That's
3: certainly part of it. But, you know, Larry Hancock has uh, his perception of that polygraph examination. He thinks that there's, there might be some significance to exactly what you just pointed out. What did they ask him and how did, they res- how did he respond? And Larry's got, you know, uh, something which I probably shouldn't go into in Larry's absence, but we should talk to Larry about it when we see him in Dallas because it's okay. an intriguing element. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, Pat, is I, I asked Buell if he happened to have been around on Wednesday the 20th inside the Texas School Book Depository when a man named Warren Caster came in with, as I understood it, two rifles which he right. wanted to show to some people. So I asked Bill about that, and he said to me very cautiously, very carefully, I don't know if I should use the word cautious, but very thoughtfully, you know, he's not a fast talker. He thought about it, and he said, well, I saw one. He said, I saw one, right? <laughs> and I huh. said, you only saw one? And he said, yeah. He says, because back in those days, you know, if somebody had a birthday or Christmas or something, they might get a rifle. For, for a present, and they'd, you know, they'd want to show it off. So his, his take on that was, you know, no big deal, nothing suspicious, you know, nothing to see, move along, that there are two rifles for one. He says he only saw one. I have no reason to doubt him. On the Wednesday, prior to the assassination on Friday, and then independently of this, someone told me, and I have no way of verifying this, that Ewell's uh, brother-in-law, his sister's husband, the day of the assassination, was on a hunting trip with someone whose last name was Esther. And this is something I was kind oh, of reluctant that. to, yeah, I was reluctant to uh, ask you all about it. But, uh, you know, I mean, I get the feeling that we want to be cautious about not making him feel like, you know, we're gunning for him or we're trying to ambush him or anything like that, you know. But, uh, right. but, but I, have you just, some,
1: I have something to add ahead. about the the Warren Caster story, which, so you know, when I started researching the assassination, I was open to all sorts of ideas, and I re- I stumbled yeah. upon the Warren Caster story, and I I can't remember who the writer was. I think it was one of the one of our British um, researchers, actually had tracked down Warren Caster, and uh, Warren Caster added a bit to the story. and One of the things that Warren Caster said that he thought it was really weird that they never really questioned him. They wouldn't. They like they asked yeah. him, "You brought these rifles in." And on the day of the assassination, he was calling on a client. He was like a salesman, I think. So he was out like at a, mm-hmm. at a client. He wasn't in the building when the shooting happened. And yeah. they never went back and verified that, the, that those rifles were at his house. Because his yeah, yeah. story was he, he had these two rifles. He brought them in. He showed them to a few people. He took them up to his office. And then when he left that day, he took them with him. But it her- occurred to sure. me, right. like, wait a second. When he left, he didn't show it to anybody. He could have brought empty boxes out with him, and they would all assume exactly. he took the rifles with him. Absolutely.
3: Right. Was it Michael Eddowes who who tracked him down? Do we know? Was it Michael Edos?
1: No, 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 no. It was, it was somebody uh Barry Keen or one of those, you know, one of the guys you, you could. find. Oh there. yeah, oh yeah. A right. British researcher. Okay. I can't remember which one, mm-hmm. but uh, I'll give Barry King credit. Hey, Barry. But I don't know. But um, anyhow, they. Uh, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah, So it was interesting. That's like. So that's. You know, if you want to say there was no way for the rifles to get smuggled in the building, well, Castor is proof that you could have because you could bring a rifle up to your office and then leave with an empty rifle case, you know.
0: But tonight uh, we are looking at various aspects of the assassination, things that kind of stick out as red flags that we have taken over the years as convention, and they are anything but. We're joined tonight by uh, – Bill, can I give you last name? Okay, uh, sure. Bill Blackwell yes. in Nevada and Alan Dale, who's somewhere incognito, traveling across the USA to Dallas, all the way from D.C., and Pat Spear, who's in Los Angeles, that certainly doesn't have a Kingstonian uh, weather front that has just moved in and is just clobbering everything with snow. And we're way too early for this, folks, in Kingston. This shouldn't be happening for another month. So it's just further evidence on, uh, I guess, global warming. Um Anyways, that's for another show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know that there have been CIA ops against JFK conspiracy researchers in the past, but I think that all, i think that was all under the Johnson administration. I think uh, I, 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 a lot of my research in the medical evidence points to a, a, a deliberate cover up by the Johnson administration. Oh, for sure, for sure. Like one of the things that people don't realize—I just stumbled upon it on uh, in Harold Weisberg's book. Mm-hmm. Um, that like two days before the end of the Johnson administration, right, uh, Frank Wozencroft, who's at the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the president's personal like attorney staff, he raised a letter to the National Archives saying, um, you know, now that the Clark panel has put out their report, some people in the media might be wanting to look at other documents about the Kennedy assassination. Well, we just want, I, I want you to know that um, we don't think you should show them the other inventories involved with the autopsy photos, Okay. So the autopsy, in 66 and 67 they, the the uh autopsy doctors were re-shown the autopsy photos and they wrote and they changed the wording from like being a wound on the back to being a wound at the base, whatever they they changed the wording around, and they actually changed uh the famous mystery photo, which is an autopsy photo, which originally showed an entrance wound on the back of the head, and then the next thing you know, it's showing an exit an exit wound because it got on the top, around on the right. top of the head. So it's like there's uh, you know, the Johnson administration, two days before they're leaving office, that's what they're thinking about, and they're actually telling the National Archives, don't let the conspiracy researchers read this stuff. And so then you find in the Weisberg uh, archives, which are mostly online now, or maybe all online, you find letters where he ke- he kept trying to get the archives to give him these documents. And then about 1975, there's th- they're still th- the, uh, saying um, privacy. They're saying, okay, Dr. Humes testified... You know, before the Warren Commission, it is testimony, He talks about pulling Kennedy's head apart. You know that that he had to pull pieces of the skull out and stuff like that. It's, it's pretty graphic. A lot of the testimony, and that's not redacted. But here, in, uh, a, a description of autopsy photos which says wound on the back or wound at the at the top of the head. That was considered too private in the Johnson uh, Johnson administration. But then the Justice Department, continuing after that, tried to fight the release of these basic documents. So um, there may never be a smoking gun showing who killed Kennedy. But I believe I've already, you know, not just me, but Weisberg and other people are still building on it. Pat, we're going to have
0: to start to wrap up now. There
1: will be a smoking gun showing that there was a cover-up to deliberately hide that there was a conspiracy.
0: Folks, we've been speaking with Pat Spear. Also joining us has been uh, William Blackwell and Alan Dale. And I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. Fascination. The definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza. First person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Night Fright Show